Yes, a bit of a variation in our uh, normal order of service today. Just consider this as an extended table thought, okay? Um, from up here rather than uh, down there this morning. We're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 34. I want to talk to you this morning about the best meal in the world. What comes to your mind when you think about the best meal that you've ever eaten? Was it, what was it? Was it Thai? Italian? McDonald's? I think the best meal that I've ever eaten was at a restaurant at Batemans Bay when I had Steak Diane. It's probably the first Steak Diane I'd ever had and it was an amazing sensation. And I need to tell you that meal was on our honeymoon and so that uh, has probably got something to do with the uh, meal being all the more memorable. But I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the best meal in the world. But I would uh, submit to you that uh, the meal that we're talking about today, the meal that we're going to share together at the end of this message, far outweighs any other meal in the world. There's no comparison uh, to this meal, no comparison anywhere in the world to this meal, and that is the meal called the Lord's Supper. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, really? A piece of, little piece of, little piece of dry bread, little, little, very little cup of juice, best meal in the world. Um, Pastor Matthews, you have lost your credibility. Well, on the contrary, I think that once we understand that, that that little piece of bread and that little cup, what they both represent, I think you'll realise that this meal is actually designed by God to impact our life in new and fresh ways every time we partake of it. And Thai doesn't do that for you. An Italian won't do that for you. And any other meal that you can think of other than the Lord's Supper can't do that for you. This morning we're continuing our short series on the characteristics of a healthy church. And as we look into the New Testament, we can see that one of the practices of a healthy church is that of the Lord's Supper. Acts chapter 2, verses 41-42 says, Then they gladly received the word, were baptised, and the same day were added unto the church about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And this practice of continually gathering together to break bread became known as the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. And it's so important to the Christian faith that the Bible mentions it five times. In Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, three of the four Gospels, where we see its origin in the Last Supper that Jesus ate with his disciples in the upper room. It's mentioned also in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. Along with baptism, they constitute the two ordinances of the church. Now the word ordinance comes from two Latin words which in their final meaning signify quote that which is ordered or commanded. Now some people view foot washing as a third ordinance and the Roman Catholic Church recognizes seven actually they call them sacraments baptism, the Lord's Supper or Eucharist, confirmation, penance, holy orders, matrimony and extreme unction, which is uh, anointing of 
people who are seriously ill. And yet Bible-believing Christians limit the number of ordinances to two because only baptism and the Lord's Supper meet five important criteria. And I put them there on your outline sheet. Number one, they're prescribed by the Lord. Number two, they're proclaimed among the saints. Number three, they're practiced by the churches. Number four, they were participated in only by the saved. And number five, they picture the sacrificial atoning death and bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As far as the definition is concerned, again, it's there on your sheet. An ordinance can be described as an outward rite. Sorry, it should be spelled R-I-T-E. Instituted by Christ to be administered in the church as a visible sign of the saving truths of the Christian faith. And then I've also included in your sheet an important point of clarification which if we understand the history of the Lord's Supper and uh, the varying views associated with down through you know, the centuries, I think this is an important point of clarification. There is no special grace affected by baptism or the Lord's Supper, though as we are obedient to Christ's, apostrophe yes, sorry for the spelling there, as we're obedient to Christ's command to remember the, uh, Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf, we do grow in grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we think about these two ordinances, there are individual aspects and there are also corporate aspects. With baptism, we are baptised once as believing individuals. And then as the assembly gathers together, we then share repeatedly in the baptism of others as often as people are saved. With the Lord's Supper, we partake of it continually as believing individuals. We take the bread, we take the cup individually, but as a gathered assembly, we deliberately and intentionally eat and drink together as an expression of our unity in Christ, as an expression of our regard and respect for one another. We eat together corporately. But rather than looking at both ordinances, this morning we're going to concentrate on the Lord's Supper, which some people do find a little bit of a confusing practice. Some Christians approach the Lord's Supper with conflicting emotions. They have questions about it. Should I participate? Should I partake of the bread and the cup? I'm not sure if I should or if I shouldn't. Am I qualified? Am I worthy? What does it do if I do? And what do I miss if I don't? And so on. Now today we're going to try to address these things in a very practical way. So that we might know how we can more fully enter into the meaning of this wonderful gift that God has given to us. If you study the Bible for any length of time, you may realize that in the Bible it's very, very clear to us that God speaks to us through his words, but he also speaks to us through pictures. That is visual images through which he chooses to communicate his word. There's a wonderful example of this in the Old Testament, which will help us, I think, think rightly about the Lord's Supper. We find it very early on in the Bible story, right back to the earliest chapters of Genesis. We read there concerning a time when life on earth was so violent and so corrupt that God brought a judgment upon the whole world. Of course, God in his nature is ever merciful and even in his wrath he remembers mercy. And so he spoke to Noah 
told him to build an ark. And in this way, Noah and his family were saved and brought through the judgment of God. And then after the flood, God gave a wonderful promise in Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. God said, I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there be any more, any more be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, these are marvelous words. This is a great promise from God, a promise in which God speaks of his gracious and sustaining of the whole earth by his mercy. But it is such an important promise. It is a covenant promise. So important that God not only gave us words, told us about it in words recorded in the scripture, but he also gave us a picture. The Bible says that God set a rainbow in the sky. And that rainbow is a visible seal of the promise of God. Every time you see a rainbow, it is God's visible reminder of his promise that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And so every time we see the rain, when we then see the rainbow, we are reminded visibly that the rain is a sign, a symbol of God's mercy to sustain life. See, time and harvest shall not cease. It's a sign of God's mercy to sustain life rather than a sign of his judgment, as it once was, to destroy life. So the rainbow, in other words, is a visible word. It is God speaking to us in pictures. It is God reinforcing of his spoken promises with a visual image that helps us seal it into our minds and into our hearts. I remember as a child, very often my parents would draw my attention to a rainbow if we were away on holidays or if even in the, they're at home. And it is a wonderful opportunity for parents to seal words and pictures together. Every time there's a rainbow, it's a wonderful opportunity to say, say to the children, come and see the rainbow. It's a sign of God's wonderful mercy. It's a picture that seals into our mind, even for those who don't yet understand the deep things of God. It's a visual sign of the promise of the mercy of God. Now, in the same way, God has given us two wonderful pictures, two wonderful pictures that are signs and seals of God's promises to us in Christ. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And when you think about it, the whole of the Christian faith can really be summed up in these two visual images. Baptism, so like taking a bath, and the Lord's Supper, having a meal. My inner life needs to be washed and my inner life needs to be fed. And these are God's promises to me in Jesus Christ. God says, Christ will wash you. Christ will feed you. Important promises, covenant promises. These are promises contained in the new covenant. So important that God not only gave us words, New Testament words, but he also gave us pictures. As a believer is baptised, God is saying, this is what I've done for you in Jesus Christ. You're washed. This is what I've done for you. 
As a believer partakes of the Lord's Supper, God is saying, this is what I do for you in Christ. You are fed. You are nourished by him. You're sustained by him. You're strengthened by him. You're satisfied by him. Like the rainbow, baptism and the Lord's Supper are God's way of visually reinforcing to our minds and our hearts promises that he's made to us in Christ. Now, if you want to think this through a little bit further, remember that the rainbow doesn't stop the rain. The rainbow is the sign that God mercifully has stopped the rain. Never again will there be a worldwide flood. And baptism doesn't wash me. Baptism is, for the believer, the visual sign that God has washed me in Jesus Christ because I've come to him in faith. In the same way, the Lord's Supper that's not the thing that nourishes us, but it's a sign of the nourishment in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It reinforces to our mind and our heart what God promises in his word. And we need this visual reminder because we so easily forget the words. How many times this week have you thought about the fact that God sustains the world by his mercy? That this planet continues to exist and is sustained only because God is holding his judgment back. How many, how many times have you thought that thought this week? Well, I don't, I have to confess, I probably, I don't know if I've thought that way this week. But if I see a rainbow, I'm reminded. Because the visual image reinforces to our dull minds, our slow minds, the reality of the promise that we so easily forget. And it brings us fresh, it brings it fresh to our minds and to our experience. Now, it's not our purpose today to uh, talk about the Lord's Supper, how it's been a subject of contention and debate throughout the centuries. But today I do want to give you a few points that I hope will help you to benefit from the Lord's Supper in a biblical way. And I do want this to be very practical. What do, you, what do we actually do? during the time that we set aside in the service for the Lord's Supper, which we will do shortly, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, as the music is played, as there are moments of stillness and quietness and time given to reflection, what, what are we to do? Well, I want to suggest to you from the scriptures five things, five, five actions, which I think are... Quite simple to remember, and I hope that these five actions will provide a sort of grid uh, through which to proceed, ways to look as we spend time at the Lord's table. Find them here, all five of them here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And very simply, the first action is to look back. That's probably one of the first things to do. When we come to the Lord's table, look back. If you look at chapter 11, verse 23, Paul says, I have received of the Lord, that also I delivered unto you. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Look back and remember Christ. Verse 25. After the same manner also, 
He took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So that's the first thing. And it's really at the heart of the Lord's table. That is, in the time that is afforded to us, we're to use that time in our minds and in our hearts to, to look back and to remember Christ's sacrifice and think about what Christ has done for us upon the cross. The bread is there to remind us what to say that Christ's body was broken for us. And the cup is there to remind us that Christ's blood was shed for us. I want you to notice that there's a distinction here between the bread and the cup, or the grape juice which is in the cup. At the Last Supper, Jesus, we're told in the Scriptures, passed the bread to his disciples, and then after that, he then passed the cup to his disciples. And Paul speaks both of them separately here in separate verses. And in our procedures, we first partake of the bread. And then following that, we then partake of the cup. Why do we, why do, we do it in that order? Why the distinction? Well, let's think first about the bread. The bread speaks to us about Christ's body in which he lived a perfect human life. Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live. Never spoke a sinful word, never had a sinful thought, always did his Father's will. And the bread represents the body of Christ. The body of Christ speaks about a perfect life lived for us. And here is what happened. The body in which Jesus lived that perfect life was broken for us. Jesus laid down his perfect life of obedience so that we are, who are so far from the righteousness of God ourselves may find in him what we don't have on our own. And this is important because when we come to the Lord's table, so often we feel so unworthy. We feel that our Christian life is unworthy. We feel the poverty of our own faith, the incompleteness of our repentance. But God speaks to us through the symbol of the bread. And he speaks to us and he reminds us that our salvation and our participation at the Lord's table does not rest upon the progress that we have made in the Christian life. It doesn't even rest on the degree of progress that we're making in the Christian life in respect to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Rather, our participation in the Lord's table rests upon the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. None of us have ever offered God perfect obedience. None of us ever will. But when we take the bread, we are reminded that Jesus' perfect obedience is ours. That his perfect life, which he lived to fulfill all righteousness, was lived for me and for you. Then there is the cup. The grape juice in the cup speaks to us of blood that's poured out, which obviously speaks about death. The bread speaks about the righteous life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect life that he lived, and the cup speaks about his ultimate sacrificial death 
his atoning death, his atoning blood poured out for our sins. And the whole point of the cross of Jesus Christ is that there, God the Son allowed his blood to be shed for us. Jesus fulfilled everything the Father gave him, called him to do. He was the one human being who had by right open access to heaven. But think of this, instead of opening and entering to heaven, which was his by right, he entered into hell instead. Having no sin of his own, he chose to bear ours. He switched positions with us. Counting the perfect obedience of his life as if it had been mine and bearing my disobedience, he endures it as if it was his. And he bears our sin and he becomes our sacrifice. And in the darkness of Calvary, he endured the judgment of God. And in the shedding of his precious blood, he releases forgiveness for you and for me. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us in the new covenant. The whole of the New Testament is about this. It's there in words. But we're so t- sometimes slow to understand and sometimes we are forgetful. And God wants, us to, wants to seal this into our minds and into our hearts. And so he gives us a picture. Take the bread. A perfect life of obedience has been lived for you. Take the cup. A perfect atonement has been made for you by the shedding of the blood of Christ. So when we come to the Lord's table, here's the first thing to do. Fill your mind with this reality. Look back to the cross. And let this be a wonderful blessing, feeding your soul as we do this. Christ lived the perfect life. His obedience is ours. He died a sacrificial, atoning death. His forgiveness is ours. This is God speaking to us in words and in pictures. Look back. Secondly, look in. Look in verse 28. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. If ever there was a time for self-evaluation, it's at the Lord's table. Some of us are in accountability groups where others ask us questions. God says, whenever you come to the table, I want you to ask yourself some honest questions. Let a man examine himself. Now, an, an examination obviously involves some questions. What are the questions? I think it's important to know the questions because Paul says some pretty strong things here. He speaks about people in verse 27, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner and being guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord, inviting the Lord's chastening. These are very strong words. And I think they leave a lot of people with a sense of fear about the Lord's Supper. You know, man, if, there, if there's any chance of me sinning against the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I better not partake of the Lord's Supper at all. And I think there are a lot of Christians who perhaps abstain out of fear. What does it mean to partake unworthily? In the context, and we read it, picked up in verse 17, in the context, partaking worthily would certainly include that our procedure be decently and in order, 
eating and drinking reverently, respectfully in respect to one another. That's certainly going to be part of it because the context in which these words are spoken, the context tells that the Corinthians were partaking of the Lord's Supper in a very, very ungodly way, a very, very unworthy way. They turned it into a drunken feast. Some people were gorging themselves. Other people went away hungry. So partaking worthily certainly requires that we don't do it that way. We do it thoughtfully, thoughtful procedures, considering one another, appropriate to the significance of what we're doing. That's certainly part of it. But the other part of it, many people then ask themselves, well, am, am I worthy? Am I worthy this week? How do I know if I'm worthy? And if you're asking that question, almost certainly the conclusion you'll get to is you're, that you're not. So Paul says, as a response to this, we must examine ourselves. So what kind of questions should we be asking? Let me suggest to you there are questions that to be asked that really go to the very, very foundation of the gospel. A good question to ask is this. First of all, am I believing? Am I believing? Great question to ask. As you look back to the cross, as you consider what God says for us to do in, with this picture of the bread and the cup, ask yourself this question. Do I believe that? Do I believe that Jesus, the Son of God, loved me and gave himself for me? Am I believing? If your answer to that question is yes, then yes, you, you, you may come to the Lord's table and partake of the bread and the cup. If the answer is no, no, I'm not believing. No, I'm backsliding. No, I've lost confidence in the Lord. No, I've got more questions than answer at this moment. Then perhaps you then need to ask another question. That question is, am I willing to believe in Christ now? You see, the table is designed to bring you to a point of decision. It's one of the most powerful things about it. Christ invites us to this table and you have to decide if you're going to respond to his invitation or not. And there is an opportunity as we gather at the table, there's an opportunity for some movement in our soul. Maybe you've come with all kinds of battles today, perplexities in your life, all kinds of things going on, raging in your soul. But Jesus reaches out to you through his word and at this table and invites you to believe today. Bring your struggles and come to him trusting. And you can come with your doubts and your fears and your struggles and the, the unresolved issues and you can say, Lord, I need your grace I need your help. I'm not sure how I'm going to get through this. I don't have all the answers at the moment, but I want, as best as I know how, I, I want to trust you through this. You can come like Thomas, the struggling disciple, who then in the presence of the Lord, beholding his hands and his feet, his body broken, his blood that was shed, at that moment says, my Lord and my God. If you're willing to come, then come limping, come in simple faith. But if you will not believe, then you shouldn't partake of the bread and the cup. Because if you're not willing to trust Christ, you, 
not willing to place yourself into his hand, then you're separating yourself from the grace of God. So the Lord's Supper is designed to bring us to a point of decision. Let a man examine himself. The question is not, did I believe 20 years ago? The question is, am I believing today? There's an act of faith here. It's an expression of trust in the midst of all the uncertainties of life. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Can you say that today? That's the first question. Am I believing The second question would be, am I repenting? And notice that we put these questions, in both of them, in the present continuous tense. Because believing and repenting are lifelong patterns. And if your answer to that question is yes, yes, you are repenting, you're believing and repenting, then yes, you should partake of the Lord's table because the Lord's table is for sinners who feel their need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me quote to you from J.C. Ryle, a wise pastor of the Church of England back in the 18th century. This is what he said, self-righteous people have no business coming to the Lord's table. For what do we declare at the Lord's Supper? We publicly profess that we have no goodness or worthiness of our own, but that all of our hope is in Christ. We publicly profess that we are guilty and sinful and corrupt and naturally deserve God's wrath and condemnation. Now, what does a self-righteous man have to do with an ordinance like that? Good question, J.C. Ryle. What are we saying when we participate in the Lord's table? We're saying not that we are paragons of virtue, but we stand ever in need of the mercy and the grace of God. That's what we declare as we come to the table. You see, I think there's some folk who say, well, I'm not sure if I'm good enough to receive the Lord's table. That's a totally wrong concept. The only people who shouldn't be receiving the Lord's table are people who think that they are already very worthy. People who think that they're good enough. Because how can they identify with a statement which says, I'm a sinner who stands in, the na- in, in need of the grace of God and think they're worthy enough to come to the table? If you see yourself as having lived a worthy life, then don't come to the Lord's table. The table is for sinners who's in ne- who are in need of God's mercy and grace who feel their need of mercy and grace. But in order to receive God's mercy and grace, you have to be willing to give up your sin. God is ready to take away any sin that you've committed, but in order for him to take it away, you have to be willing to let it go. God will not take away any sin that you refuse to let go. So if there is a sin that you will not give up, then you should not participate in the table. Now, I didn't say if there's a sin that you're finding difficult to give up. Because if you find it difficult to give up, God has mercy for that and God has grace for that and God has help for that. And God gives us His Holy Spirit to help us with that. What I'm saying is if there is a sin... And you're saying in your heart, I will not give it up, and you know it, then don't take the bread, don't take the cup, because you would then be eating in an unworthy manner. 
because you know that there is something that God is speaking to you about in your life and you're refusing to deal with it. And so you are in conflict with God. And if you're in conflict with God, you can't at all pretend to be in fellowship with God. How can you remain in that position today? How can you look back at the cross and know what Jesus did for you? Your sin put him there. And how can you then refuse to give up that sin? And yet we do. And therefore, in such a situation, we should not participate. The table is the time for looking in. For me, time for me to examine myself. Lord, is there something that I'm holding on to that I should not? Help me now to let it go so that there's nothing between me and you. Am I repenting? You see how coming to the Lord's table in this way, examining ourselves in this way, is, is good for our souls. It's nourishing for our souls. It's strengthening for our inner life. Because this is, these are the issues at the heart of our very, very, the, the heart of our Christian faith. I look back to the cross. I look inward about these realities. Am I believing? Am I repenting? Thirdly, look up. Now the point here is that we're simply talking about the Lord's Supper, a supper which goes all the way back to the night when Jesus was betrayed. We see that in verse 23. And the whole point is that that meal was a meal that Jesus shared with his disciples in fellowship together, and it's the same for us. Now, obviously, Jesus is not with us physically. He's ascended into heaven. He's at the Father's right hand. But we share fellowship with him by faith. And the Lord's Supper is a wonderful opportunity to, for us to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and find that through that fellowship with him, our, our inner life is strengthened. The whole point of the picture here is that food, as food sustains the body, so Christ sustains our soul. And we desperately need this. I mean, some of us may have come here this morning. Our faith is running very, very low. We need to be strengthened. Our hope is running dry. We need to be renewed. Our love needs to be rekindled. How's all this going to happen? We draw near to the risen Christ. We draw near to the exalted Christ in faith. We draw near in fellowship with him. He's there enthroned in heaven, yet his spirit is with us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And we draw near to him by faith. And as we pursue this fellowship, he ministers to our hearts. He pours grace. He causes it to abound. So come and look up. Look up to him in faith. Find new confidence in his love, peace in our hearts, joy as drawing near to him. The ministry of the Holy Spirit proceeds. I want you to imagine going into a restaurant and you sit down at the table and a very fine menu is given to you. It's a very fancy restaurant. On the menu there are beautiful pictures of amazing food. And because it's such a posh restaurant, the description of the meals is there written using French words. Words you can't even pronounce. You don't have a clue what they mean. And the waiter then comes and tells you what the menu means. And he interprets it for you. He explains the, he translates 
what those words mean. And he shares his own personal testimony of his experience and how good these dishes are. And as you listen to his marvellous explanation, you say, that's wonderful. That is the best waiter I've ever heard. But then it would surely be a tragedy if you then closed the menu, got up from your table, gathered your things together and walked out, leaving your friends behind and headed home. That would be a tragedy because you didn't go there just to view the menu. You didn't go there just to hear the waiter tells you what the menu means. You went to the, to the restaurant to eat the food. Now the word says that Christ will feed our souls. The, last, the, the, the Lord's Supper says the same thing in a picture. So when you come to the Lord's table, we order what's on the menu. Okay? Don't just admire the menu. Order what is on the menu. Partake of the food. Feed on Christ. Tell him that you need everything that he's promised in your life. Tell him that you're hungry for a fresh taste of his love in your soul. Tell him that you want to see more of his glory. Tell him that you want to be renewed in your faith and hope and love. Come to Christ. Feast on Christ. Look up. Order what he's put on the menu. Ask that what he's promised will be yours. By faith you will receive. Fourthly, look around. Look back, look in, look up, look around. Verse 24. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And the you there, no, it is plural. Okay. Um, it's not French, actually. The, the, the Greek says it's plural. It's for all of us. It's for all of us. It's for the local church as the family gathers together in the presence of the Lord. This is for all of us in chapter 10. The Lord's Supper there is called communion. And one thing you can never do is have communion on your own. By its very definition, communion is together. The Lord's Supper is for the family. It's the Lord's family gathering together. It's like Thanksgiving. Both of my children married Americans. Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving is very much part of our way of life now. I'm thankful for it. We have enough Americans in our church. We're all familiar with American Thanksgiving. Father and a mother, grandfather, grandmother, love to have the whole family joined together, sitting at the table for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving dinner is more than just getting stuffed with turkey. It's more than satisfying our physical appetite. It's about the joy of family being together, expressing their thankfulness. And there's no greater joy for the father and the mother, the grandparents, than to see the family joined together, the youngest and the oldest, all around the table. And this is what Christ wants and intends for us. He wants his family to gather around the table. This is where the walls come down. This is where it's not a matter of the young or the old, Jew or Gentile, pastor or parishioner, Bible scholar or novice. It's just people receiving from the hand of Christ. We all receive the same invitation. We all come to the same saviour. We all come with the same need. We all come to the same supply. So at the table, look around. Give thanks for the family of God. 
Take the opportunity as you're praying that the grace of God would be ministered in your life. Pray that others also would receive the same blessing. It's not just about us, it's about our family. We eat and drink together because we're thoughtful, respectful, mindful of one another. Pray for those people next to you, those people behind you, in front of you. Pray that perhaps after the service you might have a word of encouragement to say to them. Wait, whereby you might bless them and bring joy to our Father as people who gathered there for the t- at the table. Lastly, look forward. Look for verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you just show the Lord's death till he come. The word show there means declare or to proclaim. We proclaim the Lord's death through doing this and we Continue to do that until he comes. If you're a visitor here with us this morning, have not yet come to that point of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him for salvation, then feel free to look around during our observation of, of the Lord's table. Because everyone here who takes the bread and takes the cup is saying something to you. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're not saying that we're good enough for God. We're saying precisely the opposite. We're saying that we're not good enough for God and our only hope is in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. And we're proclaiming it because that sacrifice is also sufficient for you. And if you will come to Christ and receive him, if you will repent and believe the gospel, you can also be saved. Jesus died for every person. Jesus died for you. And so why would you not come today to believe and receive and partake of the merits that flow from his life and flow from his death? We proclaim Jesus' death in the Lord's Supper until he comes. That's a looking forward, isn't it? Looking forward to the coming of Christ. We look back, we look in, we look up, we look around, we look forward. Because this is something that we are going to continue to do while we wait for his coming. And then when he does come at the rapture, or when he calls us individually, faith will then be turned to sight. And you'll find yourself translated into the worship of heaven in the presence of Jesus who will open to you everything in eternity for which he died. And until he comes, we continue, we'll continue to meet around the table, sharing this meal together in a biblical way, as befitting a healthy church. And after the singing of the next hymn, you're invited to join with us. Our next hymn, the words are going to be on the screen. Ben's going to come and lead us.